0: If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy.
1: They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com.
0: From coast to coast and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio around. Online with Bill Alexander.
2: Hi everyone, yours truly, William Eric Alexander, all my friends call me Bill and you're online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM, McKeesport, and also on WLDJ-FM, 107.5, home of the greatest hits of all time at HOFMRadio.com, Newcastle, and we're also streaming at italknet.com. Well, I've been looking forward to this interview, especially since we've been dealing with such heavy topics over the last few weeks with what's going on in the United States right now. This one, I think we can take our mind off of everything just a little bit, maybe for an hour of your time, we'll take our mind off everything tonight, because we're going to talk about the Beatles, and we're going to be talking to uh, Demi Somach, Denny Somach, who, uh, as I said to him earlier, uh, <laughs> it seems like he's worked with everybody in the recording industry, and on the phone line right now, we have Denny. Danny, how you doing this evening? Okay, Bill, how are you? I'm doing real good. So, as I was looking through some of your stuff, you've been working in the music industry in some way, shape, or form for, what, the last 50 years or thereabouts?
0: Uh, 40 years or so. 40 years. Uh, yeah. I just haven't been able to find a real job. So, you
2: know. <laughs> so give us a little background of where you started at and how you got involved with all these uh, musicians. Well, uh,
0: when I was in college, and I went to study business. I wanted to be a stock analyst, stock broker. And uh, I got a job at a radio station while I was in school. And then I joined the college radio station. And one thing led to another. And I kept uh, getting jobs. I got a job in Philadelphia on the air at a major market station. I was the music director there. And uh figured, oh, okay, I'll do this for a while until I, you know, can go back and get a real job. and uh <laughs> One thing led to another, and uh, around 1980, I uh, heard about uh, NBC starting a new rock radio network called The Source, so I pitched some shows, and uh, they picked up my shows, and I started producing syndicated radio programs, and uh, that started to blossom, and I was doing all kinds of shows, Uh, Legends of Rock, I was doing... Uh, I had a show with Westwood One called Psychedelic Snack. But I did a weekly Beatles show with Scott Muni, a legendary DJ from WNEW FM in New York. He was actually one of the first people that met the Beatles when they came to America in 64. Anyway, I proposed to him that he should do a weekly Beatles show and I would produce it. And he said, well, he said, that that sounds good. That could be like last 13 weeks or so. Well, it went 10 years. And what we did is I had different people come in. Uh, We'd either have a theme of the week, which we'd follow, or different people would come in, uh, Billy Joel, Elton John, and we'd ask them to talk about the Beatles. And I've been collecting Beatles stories ever since, and I've got hundreds and hundreds of them. So uh, I figured, you know, I've only had a chance to use some of them on the radio show. I'm going to put them in a book. And that's how this book came about.
2: What's interesting. A
0: walked down, walk, walk down Abbey Road.
2: Now, what's interesting about that is I was working for a small FM station out of the city of Pittsburgh. And I actually have a couple of the Westwood One albums or, or vinyl of the psychedelic sa- sa- uh, snack that's actually snack. in my basement. Uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that myself- was yours. <laughs>
0: Was that W D V
2: E? No, that was W L S W was based out of Scottsdale Connellsville, just uh, east of uh, okay. or west of east of Greensburg,
0: yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so
2: yeah. We were a small a small um FM combo, and I didn't realize that uh you were the guy that did it, but I just came across those uh those uh psychedelic snack uh vinyl the other day, and I'm going, what am I gonna do with these? Well now I'm gonna dig them back out, listen to them again. That's kind of cool. So Yeah,
0: they're the in- too, on ebay but yeah eBay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i got some dr domeno stuff there too but anyhow yeah. um so the whole idea of the beatles book is basically going back through old interviews that you had with these performers and you just now put it down on paper
0: well no i still collect uh, i'm always collecting interviews i'm still doing okay. interviews all the time uh i'm getting ready to launch a podcast soon but um i mean one of the best stories in the book is something i did about a year or so ago i was uh, I was in New York at Electric Lady Studios, which is Jimi Hendrix's studio. Okay. And they were having a press conference. Uh, Santana was there and the Isley Brothers. So I interviewed uh, Carlos, and then I went and interviewed the Isley Brothers, and that was the first time I had ever interviewed the Isley Brothers. And I figured, you know what, Uh, let's see what they have to say, because there was a connection there. The Isley Brothers, of course, did the original Twist and Shout, which the Beatles covered. And they did Shout, which the Beatles also covered right. uh, in their live set. So uh, they were sort of uh, an influence on the Beatles. So I asked Ron Isley, I said, you know, tell me a story about the Beatles. And he starts telling me a story. Uh, you know, a lot of groups were worried when the British invasion started that it was going to disrupt their career, especially like the Fabians and the Bobby Rydels and the, you know, the, those those kinds of artists. But um The Isley Brothers said they weren't – Ron said they weren't worried because – and most people don't know this, but Jimi Hendrix was actually in the Isley Brothers for about six months. Oh,
2: I didn't realize that. Um,
0: Yeah, in in 64, 63, 64. So uh, Ron goes, yeah, well, we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and, you know, we weren't worried. We knew that, you know, they were doing our songs, but we also had this great guitar player in our band, named Jimi hendrix and we knew we were going to be a great act and right. i just remember i remember sitting there watching ed sullivan with jimmy on the couch and i said well wait wait a minute wait a minute. What, you're watching ed sullivan from your in your living room on the couch and you're sitting next to Jimi hendrix <laughs> and he goes yeah he, he was in our band so you know we, we watched the ed sullivan show together right and jimmy said boy yeah they're great but you know i, I think we're going to get through this we're, we're going to be okay so I figured oh, oh,
2: there's a story I hadn't heard. So that goes in the book. Um, you'd mentioned a friend of mine. I'm actually friends with Fabian, uh, who I've talked to him about the whole Beatle invasion in 1964 because a lot of people didn't think he actually had a career and he couldn't sing. But lucky for him, he was able to act somewhat. And then he found his new uh, new line of work. But with the Beatles, when they came here in 1964, was it because of the um, the British influence on the music that was actually here in the early 60s that made them big, or was it just their personality that just made them that much bigger?
0: Well, I, I think it was a combination of things, obviously, but also the build-up. Uh, you know, they, they had a couple albums out in, uh, in England before they had anything out here, and their first album and first singles were released in America on a little label called VJ because Capitol wouldn't release them. They didn't think that uh, this kind of music guitar bands were going to be doing anything. Right. But the reason the Beatles, uh, you know, they first of all, they they wrote great songs. They wrote their own music. They played their own instruments. You know, they wore matching outfits. They had long hair. Uh, you know, my parents hated them. You know, all <laughs> these things that you need. Uh, and, and that's really it. And they came out and they went on the Ed Sullivan Show. Of course, you can't do that because so they were you go on a TV show right. that everybody sees, uh, and we were all just uh, taken aback. I mean, I was about 10 years old, and uh, I got excited just like everybody else. So, but the fact is, they, they had great songs, and they were great musicians.
2: Now, a lot, of, a lot of things that I've read and I've seen in the past, and also with interviews with Paul McCartney, is they said one of their major U.S. influences was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And there's this story Correct. going around that the, the, the reason they named themselves the Beatles is because the Beatles and the Crickets were both insects, and that's why they did it. Is that true? Uh,
0: that's, you know, I, there's a couple of answers you get. Uh, John Lennon on occasion has said that that's true. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, yeah, the Beatles, and they spelled it differently. Another story is they got it, you know, from the beat groups. Okay, so it's partially true, but there's a couple other reasons too.
2: Because, um, and you said guitar bands—they didn't, Capitol didn't think guitar bands were going to be big, because of of the way music evolved from the 1950s into that, and there were there it was more instrumental music than it was just guitar. Do you think the Beatles, if they would have if they would have not hit in 1964? Because they were so different. If they would have happened five years before or five years later, do you think they would have had the same success?
0: No, and I'll tell you why. The okay. Beatles are a perfect example of the, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule. Yes. What, ma- what made the Beatles the Beatles is not that the fact that they were in Liverpool, yeah, that was part of it, they played the cavern and the... But the fact that they spent almost two years playing in Hamburg, Germany, they played, you know, five sets a night, six, six nights a week, you know, lived in and out of vans, in and out of their, each other's pockets. They really, you know, uh, banded uh, and, and bound together and, and gelled because of that experience. And they just, you know, they had it down. By the time they came back to England and recorded their first record, they had done Thousands of hours and played, you know, hundreds of shows. So uh, that's what made them the Beatles.
2: So with making them the Beatles and doing the whole Hamburg, Germany circuit and playing all these small dives, basically, and recording in um, and recording in London, when they released the United States, you said they were ready but did they ever yes. think they were going to be as big as they were when they got here i mean you see you see video you see film of of them getting off planes you see the girls at the airports you see the concert halls that are filled they played played in pittsburgh right after they got here at uh, at a uh, at the uh, soldier and sailors hall uh, and and the right. radio station kqv was the one there they're bringing in which was a rock and roll station at the time do you think that because they had i mean they were different enough and like you said the the individuals the youngsters that were listening to them at the time were rebellious enough they knew their parents hated the music because they knew it was noise but yet the beatles played along with that and the beatles actually well, promoted yeah. themselves that way
0: well first of all the beatles also had something that many groups didn't have at the time they had a real manager okay his name was brian epstein and he was instrumental in guiding them and Uh, they actually decided uh, they could have come over. uh, Sid Bernstein, well-known promoter in New York who eventually brought the Beatles to, uh, to Shea stadium uh, wrote a letter to Brian Epstein in the summer of 63 and said, look, I've been reading about the band. I want to book them to come play in the States. Okay. And Brian Epstein said, well, no, uh, I don't think so. We've decided we want to wait. And what, what he told the group was, look, we're not going to go to America and, you know, maybe not be successful until we have a number one record in America. We are not going over because they had released from me to you had come out. Yes, I love you. Did nothing. Um, in fact, Del Shannon had covered. I think it was from me to you and mm-hmm. got it up to like number 80 on the charts. But it wasn't until December that. Uh, January actually of '64 that I want to hold your hand became the number one record, and they were actually playing in Paris in January when they got word that I want to hold your hand was the number one record, and that's when they uh, decided, okay, we have this offer from a guy named Ed Sullivan, uh, we're going to take them up on it, and we'll we'll go play America. But they were number one when they got here, so, so you know.
2: So how many songs that they have on the on the chart um, in the top five or top six? In 1964, when they ran on Ed Sullivan's show?
0: Well, if you, uh, I think it was the second week of April, the Beatles uh, were holding down the top five positions uh, on the charts. Uh, and the flip sides were also on the charts. But they were holding one, two, three, four, and five, which is uh, unprecedented.
2: Which which again is amazing, but the thing I think is most interesting is the summer of '64 that an old crooner knocked him off out of the number one spot, which was Dean Martin with Everybody Loves Somebody. And I talked to his daughter a couple months ago, Dina, about her dad doing that, and mm-hmm. I guess there was there was a little banter and rivalry going on between Dean Martin and the Beatles at the time because they were all in the business together and they all knew that if they would all be successful, then it would all benefit everybody.
0: So. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you who really uh, who, who first knocked the Beatles out of number one was uh, Louis Armstrong, oh. in his version of Hello Dolly. Hello Dolly, that yeah. Number one, and uh, that really uh, knocked everybody for a loop. But you know what? Uh, as soon as the Beatles came over, then the whole wave started. The Dave Clark Five came over, and they had a number of hits: uh, Manfred Mann, The Animals, Peter and Gordon. They all started putting out records, and they were all having hits. So it was just unprecedented.
2: What do you think? I mean, at the at the time the Beatles came in, the Beach Boys were really popular. You had that California sound. What made the Beatles unique at the
0: time? Well, uh, even the Beach Boys at that time were not doing that many uh, original songs, you know, Surfing Safari and back and you know, Surfing USA and back in the USA they did a lot of Chuck Berry stuff. Right. The Beatles Pretty much uh, were doing almost all their own songs, uh, except for a couple of songs on the first album, which didn't come out here, which was called Please Please Me, and on the second album, which was called uh, With the Beatles, not Meet the Beatles. Meet the Beatles was the first American album, uh, and actually the Beatles had two albums out before that in England, but by that time, they were pretty much doing uh, almost all their own material, and they were just great songwriters, and uh, that's what made the difference.
2: So the Beatles, basically, they recorded, we'll use 1964 as the starting date in the U.S., but they broke up in, what, late 69, early 70? That's when they They went off on the...
0: They they broke up uh, in, uh, in, actually, the official breakup date was like May of 1970, right when uh, Let It Be came out.
2: Okay. Um, Why... give me an understanding why they went their own ways did they think that they couldn't do any better than they they they've already done or were they looking at going into different uh different arenas by themselves
0: well no you got to remember uh, first of all they had to stop touring in 1966 because they started uh making these incredible albums like revolver and rubber soul and then of course eventually sgt pepper and they realized they could not produce them on stage okay uh, and also, by the time they were done and played Candlestick Park in '66, which turned out to be their last show, the audience—they couldn't hear themselves. They played a 32-minute set, same set in every city. Uh, the audience just screamed. Nobody was paying attention, and it was just—you know—they'd they, had it. That was it. They didn't want to continue anymore. And remember, there were no big sound systems. There were no—I mean, the Beatles were the first ones to play stadiums. Right. You didn't have—you didn't have people playing stadiums. So the sound systems weren't weren't technology wasn't up up to it, but also um, obviously they wanted to start doing other things. But keep in mind they've been playing since nineteen sixty sixty one. So for almost ten years, yeah, they were playing and they played everywhere. They played all over the place, and it was just you know okay, we've been Beatles. Let's do something else.
2: So when they broke up. And they went off their own thing. Now the first, the first one to start recording himself was that Paul McCartney,
0: or well, yeah, officially. Although George had done an electronic album and John was doing some avant-garde albums with Yoko, uh, Paul's first album, McCartney, which came out right around the time of uh, of Let It Be, was the first solo album. And then okay. of course, you know, John, and then you know we had Ringo, and Ringo actually made the first number one album by an ex-Beatle, and the first number one song and then of course george came out with his masterpiece all things must
2: pass yeah so when they when they came out they i mean they had such they had such a um a following as the beatles when they went off in their own direction did they ever see i mean did they ever see the the same the same amount of um of support of of um following that they did as the beatles i know paul mccartney who's still on the road today, has a very large following. But can you compare today's yeah. following to what they had in the 1960s?
0: Well, but it was a whole different thing. Yeah, Paul has uh, been able to uh, achieve superstardom uh, as a solo artist, uh, as a member of a group called Wings. Uh, of course, John, you know, didn't play. He played a few shows here and there, but never really, you know, went out on the big tour. And George only did the big big tour in, like, 74. Okay. And he did a tour in Japan. And Ringo, of course, is always touring with his all-star band. But Ringo, you know, (laughs) wasn't the kind of songwriter that Paul or John was.
2: Ringo just seems like he's having fun. I think that's the only reason why he does it. exactly
0: right. Plus, you know, I mean, you know, imagine, I mean, Ringo could get anybody who'll join his band. That's true. Imagine getting a call from Ringo saying, look, I'd like you to join my all-star band. Uh,
2: I had the pleasure of seeing McCartney a couple years back, and um, it was the first time I saw him in concert. And I'll be honest with you, that was one of the most amazing shows that I've seen. And for someone being the age that he is, to be able to still have that stamina to keep doing everything he's doing, it's just amazing. It really is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, And he loves it. And he's great. I mean, you know, he may not... Uh, have as uh, successful albums as as he's had in the past but his live show is just unbeatable
2: so if what 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 makes the beatles still the beatles in 2020 because it seems to me that the beatles it they still have a following and it may not be of our age but it's of younger people finding the music
0: well, what happened is the Beatles did something that really had not happened before. It didn't happen with Sinatra, although there's people that still like Sinatra. Right. It didn't happen with Elvis. They're still Elvis fans. They became cross-generational. And really, that they were the first band to do that. And then, of course, you know, the Stones did it and Zeppelin did it. And if the Beatles were still playing today, they'd be like the Stones. Right. You know, the age of the Stone show is anywhere from 16 or 17 up to 75. Right. And, and the band is older than that. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, audience. But it's cross-generational. There's three generations of fans at a Stone show. Same with the McCartney show. Yeah. So uh, it just became cross-generational, something that hadn't happened before.
2: So in the book, A Walk Down Abbey Road, you have the foreword written by Mickey Dolenz, who was Correct. one of the Monkees. That's right. Did did the monkeys feel that they were they were the TV version of the Beatles, like it was talked about in the States? Or did they actually just say, okay, we're just a TV program who became music, magician, musicians. And I know Mickey sang before this, and I also know that Mike Nesmith did too. Um, right. well, so,
0: and so did Davy so Jones, as a matter of fact. But they, just, right,
2: but they just put them together as a TV series, yeah. and then they became... The the people they were portraying on right. TV.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the idea was let's create a band, an American Beatles, you know, something to rival the Beatles, and uh, let, and let, we'll do it with a TV show. You got to also remember that nobody thought Beatlemania was going to last right more than a couple of years, so they figured let's get this show out there really quick and get it on TV and put a few records out. And uh, the monkeys were very successful, and they actually, for a little period there when they first came out, were selling more records than the Beatles were. So, uh, But uh, here we are today in, 19, in 2020, and uh, this week the monkeys are putting out a new live album, and they're going out on tour as soon as this whole thing is over. Yeah. So they're still out there, and they're still playing, and they're still great.
2: Um, it, it, it's just interesting to me to hear that because I always thought the monkeys were underrated when it came to a band, because I think a lot of the work they did was actually on par, um, with the Beatles. It was just a different style of music comparing it to the Beatles and the untimely passing of, uh, of Davy Jones and also, um, Peter Tork recently. Is just um, too bad that they weren't able to get all four of them back together again. Because I guess Mickey and Mike um, Nesmith are actually touring again,
0: right? But uh, also the monkeys, uh, the monkeys had something that the Beatles had, although it wasn't their own. They had the greatest writers in the world. Yeah, I mean Don uh, Kirshner, uh, who uh, you know helped put them together and and oversaw their recordings. He had a stable of writers. I mean, the people that were writing monkey songs, you know, Neil Diamond wrote I'm a Believer, Carol King and Jerry Goffin wrote Pleasant Valley Sunday, Cynthia Mann and Barry, uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, uh John Stewart, even, you know, Paul Simon, you know, these were the people that were writing songs for the Beatles. So, you know, how could it miss?
2: And that that is very true. Um, so when the Beatles broke up in the 70s, as you said, they weren't performing live. The last concert was, um, 66. Right. Yeah. So did Yoko have something to do with that, to pull John away? Or is that just one of those rumors that we heard?
0: Nah, I, and I know Yoko somewhat, and I've been up to the to Dakota a number of times and she really didn't have anything to do with breaking the Beatles up. Uh, that's, you know, like so many other myths. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it she did, uh, want to make music with John and she sort of drew John out of his shell, so to speak, uh, and gave him the confidence. I mean, she's, people don't know this, but she's the co-writer of Imagine.
2: Yes. Which is a wonderful song, which is very uh, poignant and timely right now. Um, Right. So with, 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 with John, unfortunately who was, um, who was killed on his doorstep and, Julian coming up, there was always rumors that they were going to get the Beatles back again with Julian taking his dad's spot. Was that ever talked about for real? Or was that just one of these rumors that we heard um, or we well, wanted for, to believe?
0: Yeah. No, I think it's, it's it's an obvious situation that people talked about. But I don't think it ever was uh, seriously considered. I mean, can you imagine the comparison? Oh, yeah. That they would have to go through. It just didn't, uh, it, it's not like Led Zeppelin reformed with Jason Bonham on drums. You know, it it just wasn't going to be anything close to uh, what the, it, it, and, and they were smart in not doing it as well.
2: Is there any more music, because I know they did that um, music release years ago when they did the uh, the documentary and they pulled all this stuff out of the archives. Is there still more music in the archives of the Beatles that we haven't heard yet? Or has everything been released?
0: I would say that the majority of stuff is out there. Now, if you saw Eight Days a Week about a year and a half ago when that came out, that had a lot of the live stuff. The Beatles anthology really went through pretty much what was there. Uh, there are maybe one or two unfinished instrumentals or partial things but there's nothing really that I'm aware of or that anybody else has uh, come up with that's still in the vaults. I think everything's pretty much come out
2: So when you wrote the book and you started talking to all these people that were, that were with the Beatles that, that worked with them were there any stories in the book that surprised you like the Jimi Hendrix story did?
0: Well yeah, just about every story um, There's a story with Joe Cocker who, of course, uh, did one of the definitive cover versions of all time when he did, with a little help from my friends, and he said, you know, he, he was a big Beatles fan. The Beatles liked the way uh, he, he, had, he, did, he had covered I'll Cry Instead, and they really liked the way he did that, so they told him, uh, okay, what else do you want to do? And he decided one day, and he, had, he told me the story, he was sitting uh, in, in an outhouse, <laughs> Uh, and he came up with the arrangement that he was going to use for, with a little help from my friends. And as soon as he was done, he went out and he recorded it. And, of course, it's, it's a standard now. Right. He's, he's associated with that song. So that was a cool story. Most of the other stories, like with Billy Joel or Joe Walsh, was we saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan, and that's the first time we realized that I could do that, and that's what I wanted to be and that was really the main theme of most people uh that that who gave comments that are in the book
2: you're listening to online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM McKeesbart and also on WLDJFM 107.5 Hall of Fame Music Radio at HOFMRadio.com, Newcastle. And you're also listening to us at italknet.com. On the phone line, we have Denny Somach. So, Denny, when you talk to the Rolling Stones, did they always feel compared to the Beatles or were they just trying to go their own way?
0: No, I think the, again, the public made that rivalry, you know, the Beatles versus the Stones and that whole thing. And you know, live it also had to do with the fact that the Stones, uh, actually, the Beatles wrote the Stones' first release. They uh, they rewrote uh, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" into a song called "I Want to Be Your Man," and they gave it to the Stones, and that was the first uh, Stones recording that went into the top 20. So there was a natural rivalry, but really, uh, the Beatles only were around playing live you know, for only a few years after they hit, whereas the Stones are still playing today. Right. Who knows what would have happened had the Beatles stayed together and, 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 and were continuing to play like the Stones. But, you know, the Stones were in the wake of the Beatles and uh, they picked up the mantle.
2: So the second wave that came out of, um, out of the UK, would you consider Elton John, David Bowie um, that came out? How were they influenced by the Beatles?
0: Well, if you talk to Elton John, he'll tell you that uh, I mean he, he happened to be uh, he got a job with a publisher named Dick James, who happened to be the Beatles uh, publisher. And one of his jobs was when the Beatles would uh, finish a new song and they'd have a demo or something, he would go and pick it up and bring it over to the office. Okay. So he' got to hear all the, all the, the Beatles songs before anybody else. But he sort of got the idea that, you know, hey, I can write songs and, you know, I gotta, but I, I need uh, like a Lennon and McCartney thing. So he went out and he found a guy named uh, Bernie uh, Taupin and they wanted to write songs the way that Lennon and McCartney wrote songs. And that's what they did.
2: Which, uh, again, Elton still performing um, as of now. Unfortunately, we uh, lost David Bowie. It's been about, what, one or two years now. Um, yeah. How did, how did Bowie figure into the Beatles?
0: Well, uh, it's funny, uh, and again, uh, this is just one of those facts that isn't really pointed out, but Bowie felt very competitive with the Beatles, and in fact, his only number one song was a song called Fame, yes, which he co-wrote with John Lennon and Carlos Alomar. which I, that's kind of ironic. Bowie's only number one song was a song he co-wrote with John Lennon, so, you know, that speaks for itself.
2: So how, why did he feel like there was uh, some type of um, animosity between the two of them then?
0: I don't think he felt animosity. I just think he felt like, uh, I want to do what the Beatles did, okay, and, and I want to carve out my own thing. And, of course, he sort of did that. He'd been around for a while, and his real name was Davy Jones, and he recorded it as <laughs> Davy Jones. Uh-huh. When the Monkees came out, he had to change his name to... David Bowie right uh, but he, he put out a couple albums with a band called the Manish Boys and then a couple under his own name and it really wasn't uh, until he took the persona of Ziggy Stardust that he really uh, you know started to take off
2: so when you look at the US performers like uh, look at Billy Joel and performers like that and you said they saw him on the Ed Sullivan show and they said we could do that too did their stage presence? Did they look at the way the Beatles did it and try to imitate it, or did they just take that energy that the Beatles had and incorporate it into their own shows?
0: Oh no! Of course, they tried to imitate. I mean, one of the other, one of the best imitators of all was the, a band called the Birds. Okay, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you talk. The Birds are in the book. They'll tell you that you know they saw Hard Day's Night. They all went to watch it together. And right after they came out, they went out and bought the 12-string Rickenbacker and decided to do electric music with folk. And so the Beatles heavily influenced them. Just about everybody that was uh, around at that point were influenced and did try to mimic the Beatles to some extent. But why not? That's what you do until you develop your own style. You look for something to, uh, to base your act on.
2: Which, which does make a lot of sense. So when you looked at the Beatles and they, they realized that they had this this uh, this musical empire in the 60s, who came to them and said, okay, guys, now you need to make movies? How did that come into well, play?
0: Okay, well, first of all, it was 64 and a guy named Walter Shenson, who was a movie producer at United Artists, Back in the 60s, if you remember, when a, when a band got hot, they wanted to try and make a movie strictly because they could then have a soundtrack album and put music out. Right. That was the main reason to do it. They also had to do it because the, they didn't know how long the band was going to be hot. And I'll tell you a story, which I got from Walter Shenson. Walter Shenson went to Brian Epstein and said, look, we've got to make this movie. We're going to make it real quick. We're going to make it in black and white. And then we're going to make a second movie. They signed the Beatles to do three movies. And the first one was A Hard Day's Night. And when Shensen went to make the deal with Brian Epstein, Epstein, you know, figured, OK, the boys are going to be, you know, out of uh, action for a whole month while they shoot this movie. But we're going to get a record out of it. So that's the reason we're going to do it. But they didn't really think much of it. Okay. And Walter Jensen struck a deal with Brian Epstein that is absolutely unbelievable. He went to uh, make a deal with them and Epstein said, look, uh, not, we're not interested in, in that, owning the movie or being, you know, the, I, you got to pay us $25,000 and you can release the album and we'll get our regular royalties and that's all we want. And that was a lot of money back then for four guys to make a movie. Uh, I mean, the whole movie cost less than a million. So they were getting $25,000 and of course uh, the movie, you know, was spectacular and then the, they then made Help the next year, which was the one in color. And they never really got around to making the third movie because they were just too big. So uh, they ended up doing, uh, you know, Yellow Submarine instead.
2: Right. So who who was it in their right mind decided that they were going to make the movie S- Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band?
0: <laughs> and oh, that put, was Robert.
2: And put that the that Bee Gees in it.
0: Robert Robert Stigwood, who managed the Bee Gees uh happened to be a, a partner of Brian Epstein okay. and M's music uh, in the 60s. And in the 60s, he took an option to make a movie of Sgt. Pepper. But it wasn't until, you know, uh, what was that, uh, towards the end of the 70s when that movie was made, he didn't exercise his option. And by that time, he had the biggest group in the world, which was the Bee Gees. Right. And he also got, got Peter Frampton, who was one of the biggest stars yep. in the world at the time coming off of Frampton Comes Alive. And he said, look, I've got the rights. Uh, I'm going to make a movie out of Sergeant Pepper. I'm going to the, cast the Bee Gees, and I'm going to cast Peter Frampton. And uh, that's how that came about. But it, it was if you know anything, if you've ever seen it, it's not a very good no, movie.
2: No, it's not good at all. I would love to know what the the Beatles themselves thought of that movie when it was released, because you know they had to have seen it.
0: Oh, of course they saw it. But, you know, I, I, I don't think they really had much... Uh, thought at all, because by that time, I mean, do you have any idea how many Beatles songs have been covered by other people? That's
2: true. That's very true. Yeah.
0: Ridiculous. It was just another, you know, okay, guys making a movie. It's an excuse to cover our songs. You know, some some will make it. and Some won't. But I don't think they really cared
2: yeah cuz it it is it, it, it's not very good at all um uh, which which is uh which is a shame because i think if if they would have actually taken the movie a little bit more seriously they could have made it into a much better film so with the whole idea of the beatles and the, who owns the beatles there was a story the song uh, there was a story going around in the late 80s i guess it was between Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. And Jackson was right. supposedly looking at buying, looking at investing money. McCartney said, I know they're going to be selling the rights to the Beatles' music. You need to look into buying it because I guess McCartney just bought the, the rights to all the Buddy, the Buddy Holly music. Is that yeah, how no, Paul,
0: ne- no, Paul, never, Paul never said buy the Beatles' music? Okay. Paul said to uh, Michael Jackson, uh, listen, you should get into music publishing like I did. I just, I got the Buddy Howell. And Jackson leaned over and jokingly said to McCartney, I'm going to do that and I'm going to buy your songs. And Paul, you know, just blew it off. Paul and Yoko had the, had the opportunity to buy the Beatles songs. Uh, that, that's the most asked, one of the most asked questions I get is people want to know, how did Michael Jackson get to own the Beatles songs? So the truth is that, in the sixties the Northern Songs which were set up with Brian Epstein. Yeah, James twenty five percent. And Brian Epstein had a percentage and Dick James had a percent. You know, the company was a major public company. The Beatles got in trouble.
2: So, who owns the rights to the music now since Michael Jackson has passed?
0: Uh, the Beatles, uh, you know, when Brian broke up, uh, when, when Brian died, didn't tell him what to do. you got to remember, when Brian died, Paul McCartney had no idea how to make a, an airline reservation. Okay. He never had to do anything like that. So, what happened was, he had gotten talked into going.
2: Danny, I think I just lost you.
0: The North, can you hear me now?
2: Yeah, I can hear you now.
0: Okay. So the Beatles launched Northern Songs as a public company so they could get some some revenue out of the out of it. Okay. And what happened was uh, like like what always happens? Uh, eventually somebody went into the marketplace, started buying up the shares, and uh, a guy named Sir Lou Grade ended up taking control. He was able to buy fifty one percent. So now he controlled the Beatles songs, And from there, uh, it got sold again to a guy in Australia. And at that point, uh, that's when Michael Jackson decided he wanted to buy it. And uh, the selling price uh, was like, uh, I think it was like fifty one million. Wow. And Paul McCartney decided uh, with Yoko they were going to go in together. He said, "No, that's too much. It's overpriced. We're just gonna, we're not gonna do anything." And that's one of the biggest regrets he ever had. Now that catalog was bought by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson then went in and brought uh, Sony Music in as his partner. Added, started buying up other songs, and that publishing company was sold for like three hundred million. Uh, and then, you know, more recently, it got sold. Michael sold his half back. To CBS, so CBS Songs owns them now. Okay. Uh, Michael, Michael, you know d- derives a revenue from it, but uh, it's valued at a billion dollars. So,
2: so when Paul performs the Beatles music, he has to then pay a licensing right to do that.
0: Well, yeah, but he gets uh, publishing works this way. Uh, in most cases, you split with the publisher. Okay. So Paul gets fifty percent. Of the royalties, the publisher gets fifty percent. Now, if you're your own publisher, you get a hundred percent. But no matter who owns the publishing, Paul still gets his performance half, his fifty percent. So he still gets paid. So not that he pays somebody else, he, he gets paid, but he only gets paid half.
2: So in his mind, when he thought it was too much money, was he thinking was he probably thinking that way? Then at least I'll get something when I perform them. Or did he not? No, I
0: just thought. No, he, he just felt that, you know, $50 million for a bunch, for 215 songs. You got to realize, nobody thought that mu- music publishing is like, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like real estate. Nobody really thought that that was going to come about, but it did because of licensing and TV shows and in movies and cover versions and merchandise. The music publishing business has exploded. Even today, it's still one of the most lucrative businesses really have to know how to work it but if you're uh if you're the writer you always get your writer's share you could certainly sell your writer's share but right. most people don't do that unless they're desperate and
2: that, that to me is just amazing that, uh, that it, again michael jackson ended up buying it um but again i get where he's coming from that in his mind it was too much money at the time but i'm sure every once in a while he's kicking himself that they just didn't make the investment for the what what the value of the music is now
0: yeah, of course, but you know, Paul uh, didn't do too bad himself. No, he not at the all. Buddy Holly catalog. He's bought. You looked up the songs that Paul McCartney owns. You'll be blown away. Really, he
2: owns
0: standards, Broadway standards, and, and all sorts of all sorts of songs. But you know, he's worth a billion dollars without the Beatles.
2: Songs. So, when you 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 had the opportunity to interview Paul?
0: Uh, yes, several times. How
2: how is he personally to deal with?
0: He's always been great to me. I'll tell you one story. This is in the book. I interviewed Paul in 19, you know, I interviewed him a few times, but 1984 in particular, it was August, and it happened to be on a very unique date, which I'll get to in a minute. So I'm there uh, at the Plaza Hotel, and Paul says, hey, how you doing? Fine. Listen, we're doing, uh, I think it was uh, Give My Regards to Broadway was the album that was out. So Paul says, look, this is you know, interview day. We're going to do all these interviews. Why don't you stay around till the end okay. so I can give you more time, and, and we'll do our interview then. I said, okay, great. So it gets around to the end, and I'm asking all the questions, and I'm pretty much done. And I figured, okay, now I'm going to ask the question that I just realized I should ask him. Uh, but I didn't want to ask it earlier. In case he got offended, that would be the end of the interview. Right. So I had noticed on the way up to the interview that the date, and I can't remember exactly right now, is end of August, beginning of September. To the day that I was interviewing Paul in 1984 was exactly 15 years to the day of the whole Paul is dead. Ah, remember that whole yes, Paul is dead, and you know it's if and all. So I just said to him at the end, thinking that either he'll he'll get it. Or he'll be offended, but you know what? I already got my interview, so i got nothing to lose. I said, Paul, do you know what what day this is? This is your anniversary. And he looked at me, and he goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, this is to the day, the 15th anniversary of your death. And he looked up at me, and he smiled, and he said, well, as you can see, I'm still here. (laughs)
2: So he did have he does have a sense of humor then, which is great. So how is yeah?
0: But I mean, there's so many things. Uh, you, you're old enough to remember. For those of your listeners that don't, there was this whole thing about Paul McCartney had died, and there were clues in the albums, and it got it really got out of hand. Uh, and that that all started, uh, you know, in 1969. Well, and
2: wasn't there reference to his passing also in the album cover of uh, Sergeant Pepper?
0: Yeah, there were clues in all the albums. Yeah, but, you know. Those things only came out after the whole thing started to get out there ridiculous. Um, uh, it was a lot of coincidence and things like that. It was, it was not something that was planned.
2: That's when, that's when you, that's when people started uh, ruining uh, needles on turntables as they were backmasking it, trying to hear the yep. messages coming through. Um, yeah. So when you interviewed um, Ringo, how was he to talk to? Ringo's great.
0: Ringo uh, was really great. And in fact, one of the times I interviewed Ringo, uh, I brought with me a book that I had, which had uh, the front pages of all the American newspapers in the cities that they had played on the 64 tour. And I gave it to Ringo. And Ringo loved it because, you know, they were too busy being the Beatles on the right. tour. They, never saw they didn't stay in town and see the review the next day. So Ringo said to me, he goes, I've never seen these. And I said, well, I brought this for you. Here you go. And I gave him a copy. It was all... 20 cities or whatever, 20 newspapers, all the different cities where they played and, and how they got reviewed, and, and he really got a kick out of that.
2: And then you also had the opportunity to interview George, correct?
0: Yes, I interviewed George when his album, um, I'm drawing a blank now, with uh, uh, Got My Mind Set on You was the song on there. That was released yeah,
2: interviewed- 84, 85, somewhere around there, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I remember talking to George, and it was in a hotel room in Los Angeles. And at the time, uh, he was working on the Wilburys, the traveling Wilburys. Yes. And I remember we're doing the interview, and George is starting to talk about Sgt. Pepper. And he starts to go, now, let's see. Uh, you know, I'm going to see these on my, I think it was Jim Keltner, who was his drummer uh, in, the, in the Wilburys. Uh, they said something like, uh, you know, Keltner said, oh, you know, uh, my son's got a band. You know, he's 27 years old and he's got a band and he's doing this and that. And George is talking about how, you know, Keltner's band. And then uh, George goes, now, let me see, 27, no, 23. It was 23. And George goes, now, let's see, what was I doing when I was 23? Oh, yeah, I was making Sgt. Pepper. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You know, you know, It's ridiculous.
2: Do you think when talking to him, and and maybe uh, George in particular, that he missed working with a group of guys on a regular basis like the Beatles? Because to me, George seemed very quiet and very in the background while the Beatles were in their heyday.
0: Yeah, but uh, that was, no, I don't think so, because it really, he was, and and George Martin told me this, and that's in the interview with George Martin, who, of course, is the, the, the producer of the Beatles his one regret was that he didn't give George Harrison more time. Okay. George always was relegated to one, maybe two songs an album, and it wasn't until uh, his genius came out, of course, on the White Album with, well, My Guitar Gently Weeps, mm-hmm. and of course on, on uh, Abbey Road, with he wrote the two best songs on there, something, and Here Comes the Sun, and then he put out All Things Must Pass, and it was a masterpiece. So uh, George had it in him, but he just didn't have the opportunity to show it. So I don't think he regretted not being a Beatle.
2: Okay, um, and then Ringo. Ringo was basically the comic relief of the group, correct?
0: Yeah, and and they would always. Ringo only wrote two songs for the Beatles, uh, but the Beatles always made sure that he had a song on every album that he could sing. So on the on the first album, it was you know he did their version of "I Want to Be Your Man." He did "Boys." Uh, they did uh, the, the the Buck Owens song.
2: Um, uh, act naturally. Act,
0: act, act naturally. There was always a a Ringo song on every album, so that Ringo could be featured. Uh, so you know. So and then, of course, when Abbey Road came out, you know he wrote his greatest song too, which is you know Octopus's Garden.
2: Right. I was just going to say that um, because that is the most recognizable of the Ringo songs with the Beatles. is Octopus's
0: Garden. Well, he only wrote two songs. The other yeah. was Don't, Don't
2: Pass Me By on the one day. Which, uh, which I've heard him sing at with the All-Star Band, which is actually very... Right. I like the All-Star Band's version better than the Beatles' version. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is quite interesting. So the one thing, when you, when you, when you put this book together, what is one interview uh, individual that you interviewed that stands out the most?
0: Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, you know, there's so many great interviews. I, I'm gonna find it hard to tell you. I mean, Elton John's interview was great. He talked about writing uh, Empty Garden after John died. People mm-hmm. don't know this, but Elton John was very close to John Lennon. He was, in fact, he's Sean Lennon's godfather. Oh, I didn't know that. And when John died, he, you know, uh, he wanted to express himself, and it was. He didn't know what to do, and uh, Bernie Taupin came up with these lyrics and sent it to Elton, and he wrote the music around it, and that's how Empty Garden came about. But Elton pretty much almost started to cry in the middle of the interview I had with him. Mm-hmm. He, broke, he broke down, uh, and I thought he was going to cry. So that was a great interview. Um, Joe Walsh was a great interview. He talked about how you know he saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan and, you know, he was shaking his head. Yeah, that's what I want to do. And my parents were shaking their head. No, you're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, so these are the kinds of things that 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 came out that I remember most. But just about everybody uh, had a great story. Like I said, the The Izzy Brothers Jimmy Hendricks story was classic. And that that only came about recently.
2: Yeah, I, that is that is a cool story. So is this book the first one you've written or have you written other books?
0: No, my last book was actually uh, somewhat of a bestseller. I did a book on Led Zeppelin. Okay. I'll get the lead out, how Led Zeppelin became the biggest band in the world. Uh, And uh, this is a walk down Abbey Road, which just to let your people know, it's available at Amazon. I don't know when the the physical copy is going to be a while, but you can get it on Amazon, either the e-version or the physical copy. Uh, And if you, if you want more information on me or any, or get in touch, Go to my website, DennySomac.com, and I will respond to anybody that writes to me there.
2: So, Denny, are you still working in the music industry, or are you semi-retired, or how are you doing that?
0: Now? No, no, no. No, no. I'm still in the business. I still do interviews. Okay. I'm about, I'm about to launch a podcast. Uh, I do a lot of uh, legacy marketing, which means a lot of these classic rock bands yes. uh, are, are celebrating their, their history and their legacy. And I have enough, I have 5,000 hours of interviews uh, of classic rock artists. So I help them, I help do their marketing, I help them, uh, you know, pretty much uh, keep their legacy alive. So that's one of the things they do. I, I also am working on a documentary, uh, and occasionally I'll, I'll work with some groups. I've produced some records over the years. I'm, I'm the executive producer of uh, a guy named Eric Johnson. Uh, his record, Abbey and Musicom, the song was called Cliffs of Dover. Won the Grammy in 1992. Okay, was a platinum album, and I've worked with Dave Mason and Johnny Winter and various other people. But basically, my main business is this interview library I have, which I'm get in the process of. I'm going to bring it out again, and the first thing, obviously, is this book uh, in print form because it's really you know printed versions of my interviews. So I've got enough stuff. I'm going to do a couple more books, but I think the podcast is going to be extraordinary because i i have this library of of uh, interviews to pull from
2: so the podcast itself is just you're going to be going over explaining the interviews or giving them set up and then playing them or how's it going to work
0: yeah, I'll, I'll talk i'll talk about various people that i've worked with over the years and i'll play uh, some interviews by them and i think i can pretty much tell the story of just about anybody because i have interviews with just about everybody
2: right so um when do you think the podcast is going to be released
0: i think it it would have been out by now had we not been in this situation so i would say it'll be out by the fall
2: okay sounds good hey um i'd love to have you back on again to talk about it and uh talk about some of the other interviews that you've done because i think what you have there a lot of people will be interested in it'd be great listening um to be able to uh, hear about some of the greatest performers of all time. And it's amazing that you have all these interviews.
0: Well, I'd be, I'd be most happy to do it. Uh, you're right. Uh, it's a great collection of interviews. And I don't think anybody else really can compare to what I, I'm about to unleash. <laughs> I mean, literally thousands and thousands of hours, Bill. So, you know, we'll see what happens.
2: That is great. Denny, thank you very much for joining me this evening. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
0: My pleasure, Bill, and uh, you have yourself a good week. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Like I said, I hope people will check out the book. Uh, it's called A Walk Down Abbey Road.
2: And I will share the link on Amazon with them on my website and also on the uh, description of the podcast, too, so that way they can go directly to it.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Have a nice
2: time. You too. Thank you. Thanks again. Denny so much here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Great program again. Great stuff to talk about, and I love talking about the Beatles, and I love talking about music, and I had a good time this evening. We're going to step away for a brief moment, and then we're going to come back to uh, wrap up another program for this evening. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time doing it. So we'll be back in just a few seconds here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander.
1: A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello wave wink use sign language salute smile give the peace sign throw up an air high five do jazz hands remember stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can for more info visit coronavirus.gov let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together brought to you by the ad council
0: buckle up for safety buckle up Buckle up for safety. Always buckle up. Pull your seat snug. Give an extra tug. Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. Buckle up
1: for safety. Always buckle up.
0: The National Safety Council says, if you don't have seat belts,
1: get them. If you do have seat belts, use them. A social distancing tip.
2: Well, that's going to wrap up another program for this evening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a great time putting it on. Thank you very much to uh, Denny so Match for being a part of the Hoot Hootenanny tonight. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Don't forget you're listening to us on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, and also at WLDJ-FM 107.5 Newcastle, PA Hall of Fame Music. And it's HOFMRadio.com. And, hey, by the way, I get to do Oldies Radio again on WLDJ-FM 107.5 every Sunday afternoon from uh, 2 until 6. You can hear these wonderful pipes spinning the great music of way back when. Again, at WLDJ-FM 107.5 Hall of Fame Radio, hofmradio.com. Well, folks, I am out of here. Have a safe week. We'll talk to you next time. Here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, streaming live at iTalkNet dot com Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing Designer This or Designer That? Even Designer Furniture. On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the Designer Prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out.
1: Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or DesignerLooks.com.